Welcome to the Children's Hospital of Philadelphia Pediatric Emergency Medicine Podcast. I'm Megan Chamberlain, a third-year medical student at the University of Pennsylvania Perlman School of Medicine and the producer for today's episode on toxicology. The episode will be hosted by Dr. Bob Belfer, an attending physician in the emergency department at the Children's Hospital of Philadelphia, professor of pediatrics at the University of Pennsylvania Perlman School of Medicine. We are joined today by Dr. Kevin Osterhout, an attending physician in the emergency department and medical director of the Poison Control Center at the Children's Hospital Philadelphia and a professor of pediatrics at the University of Pennsylvania Perlman School of Medicine. Our second guest is Dr. Diane Colello, an attending physician in the emergency department at University Hospital Newark, executive and medical director of New Jersey Poison Control Center and a professor of emergency medicine at Rutgers New Jersey Medical School. We'll be focusing on recent updates in pediatric toxicology. So with that, let's get started. Thank you, Meg, for that introduction, and welcome Kevin and Diane to the CHOP Pediatric Emergency Medicine Podcast. Listeners, we are in for a treat today. We have two experts, as Meg described, and I want to get uh, our listening audience to get to know you a little bit better. So Kevin... Tell our audience, what's your most proud professional achievement? Well, thanks, Bob. It's great to be here. We're really glad that you invited us. And, um, you know, being a physician and a pediatric emergency medicine physician and a toxicologist is rewarding in so many ways. But as I sit here and I look at uh, my colleague and friend, Diane, on the line, um, having had the chance to work with her has to be about as proud as anything I've done. Awesome, Kevin and Diane. I'm going to ask you the same question, but you can't return the favor to Kevin. I, I want a different professional achievement that you are most proud of. Go ahead, Diane. Got it. I'll actually say what Kevin left out is that he's my mentor and was my fellowship director. So he actually bears both the credit and the blame for my entire career. <laughs> um, and I guess it's related, but not quite the same. One of my proudest achievements actually is that in recent the last year, we've combined our teaching at the New Jersey Poison Center and Philadelphia Poison Center and Maryland Poison Center. And it's been very rewarding for me to bring all of my dear CHOP faculty and colleagues together to create like kind of a broader network of mentors and faculty. So I love now that every day I get to hear from Kevin or Fred and Reddig or, you know, all of my, all of my friends. It's what, part of what makes toxicology so rewarding. We're a, we're a small group of, you know, good-natured nerds. Great. Awesome, Diane. Uh, and again, many of our listeners know I usually ask our guests their favorite disease, but since you are unique, you have a niche in emergency medicine. Kevin, let me ask you, what's your most memorable poison center call that you were on the receiving end of? Yeah. Um, thanks, Bob. I, you know, I do have a favorite disease too, which is hemoglobinemia, but we'll talk about that at a maybe another time. You know, Bob, you never forget your first. And I remember, still remember my very first call, on call for the Poison Control Center. And it was a young school-aged child who went off to school and who had a seizure at school because his doctor had prescribed him a treatment for head lice but the parents for whom English was not their first language didn't understand that it was supposed to go on their scalp and instead gave it to them by the tablespoon by mouth. And uh, that one stuck with me for a lot of reasons through a lot of the communications that we do in the ER, at the Poison Center in many different ways. 
a unique call, truly, Kevin. Diane, how about you? Well, uh, my most memorable call and my favorite diagnosis are the same. Um, I was about a week into fellowship, and I got a call about a salicylate-poisoned teenager. Uh, Salicylism is, I think, one of the most complicated and yet elegant diagnoses we deal with, and uh, my favorite poisoning. What was special about that call is that it came from a very smart person who had previously been my PICU attending. And here I am like seven days into my fellowship and he says, I think I should dialyze this patient. What do you think? And I said, I think I should call for help. <laughs> but, um, <laughs> you know, you cross the threshold into being the expert and, uh, and then you're standing on the other side of the line. And I remember that as kind of a quarter, you know, a milestone moment. Yeah, it has nothing to do with toxicology, Diane, but I remember going to teach my first PALS course and having John Downs of the famous pediatric anesthesia Downs criteria as one of my students at the airway. And uh, yeah, those moments really stick with you. That is neat. Many of us know, many of the listeners here know the number of the Poison Center. But tell us, give us the elevator spiel, Kevin. What's the day-to-day job description of a Poison Center medical director? Well, Bob, you know, at the Poison Center, we see ourselves as being a public health safety net. We're here 24 hours a day, seven days a week, even holidays for people to call if they think they have a poisoning emergency. And our phones are answered by highly skilled professionals. They may be nurses, pharmacists, some doctors who are highly trained in in toxicology. And as the medical directors, part of our role is to make sure that those people answering the phones have the resources they need to do the job that they're doing and to be there for them if they need extra help. Diane, how do you see it at New Jersey? I agree. I often say that poison centers are one of the last remaining places where you can literally pick up the phone, make a call, get a healthcare professional on the other end for you know free of charge, no phone tree, et cetera. And that's very valuable in times of crisis. Anybody who's ever talked to a parents who's called the poison center knows at that moment the caller is very anxious and and needs a lot of help so i'm very proud of that value another major role of poison centers is both professional and public education and so kevin and i both do a lot of work in educating you know medical students and residents and nursing students and nurses and you know all across the healthcare spectrum to talk to them about when to call the poison center and kind of maintain that top of mind awareness that we're here all the time to help with these patients. So a lot of our efforts are towards that. Yeah, Bob, and there's another part of our job that um, is probably my least favorite. Diane would probably say the same. Very important, and we feel like it's a shame that we have to do it, right? But we offer a important public health service. Um, the Institute of Medicine has studied the poison control program and said that it's a program that works, that saves money, that saves lives. We have lots of instances on that. Yet public funding remains a, a constant challenge in, in finding a way to pay for these poison control services. And so we spend a lot of time writing grants, uh, looking for new ways to support these services that we provide. So if anybody's listening out there that has a uh, an ear to this problem, we could use your help. Great. Awesome public service announcement, Kevin and Diane. So we as clinicians, we know when we call the Poison Center, you have the universe. You get every call. You have access to all the calls. In the ER, we triage patients, one, two, three, four, five. Tell us, Kevin and Diane, what's the triage 
categories. In other words, what cases, what calls do you get that you need to triage level one, most acute, versus level five? And as a follow-up, what percent of cases do you say you're able to stay home versus what percent do you refer to the ER? Kevin, you want to start? Um, sure. You know, the, the people that call the Poison Control Center are people that know about our service and people that are motivated to call. So a lot of those calls come from the public. If you call from the public before going to a hospital, we keep 85 to 90% of those um, callers at home and, and provide care at site. And that's one of the valuable resources we do, you know, helping people get the right care at the right place at the right time, which has become even so much more important during the COVID pandemic and in people's utilizations of ERs and hospitals. Our calls come from a wide group of people, right? We get children with exploratory household exposures. We get teenagers and young adults with drug misuse. We get occupational exposures, environmental exposures. And so it kind of depends on what that exposure is, what the dose is, how vulnerable the person involved is as we develop kind of the triage for who we get to keep at home or who we refer to a hospital and how we do that. Great, Diane. Yeah, I think there are a few substances that make everybody kind of sit up and pay attention. What we sometimes call the one pill can kill list, but it's, you know, it's certainly not confined to pills. So um, a high toxicity medication, you know, in particularly in young kids, calcium channel blockers, beta blockers, seizure meds, bupropion, opioids, you know, so some of it has to do with you know, exactly what we think the implicated substance is. And we send in, I send in any kid who's symptomatic at home, because I feel like once they've shown some signs that they're, that they really drank or swallowed what their parents fear they have, then they need to be evaluated. And I try to never kind of put a parent in a position to say, you know, do they look more sleepy, <laughs> you know, um, and just have them go ahead and get evaluated. Like Kevin said, the decision algorithm for that is a little different during COVID. We did keep more patients home and we certainly do keep the majority of patients home. I think our classic non-toxic exposure we always laugh about is the silica gel pack. You know, you buy a new pair of sneakers and there's that little package in there that keeps it dry and kids find those all the time and put them in their mouth and they call us and we reassure them and we can keep keep those at home. And as Diane said, if uh, you went in and you found your toddler playing with a bottle of um, Verapamil XL uh, sitting under the cabinet, we'd be very worried about that. And we'd be likely to refer that into the hospital, even though we'd hope that they wouldn't become sick from that exposure. So just as a follow-up, silica gel packets, you know, that's, uh, I'm sure, common around the household. What other non-toxic ingestions that both parents and even sometimes physicians would call you and you say, that's on the list. So sort of educate us. Again, the, non, the silica gel packets. What else? Play-Doh. How about Play-Doh? We love Play-Doh calls because we can reassure people. Um, and I, I like to say silica gel packs and glow sticks keep our phones ringing. You know, the holidays like 4th of July when kids or Halloween when kids have the glow sticks and they break open and they eat them. Um, we're always reassured by those and enjoy kind of telling people that it's okay not to worry about. Even though household chemicals or cosmetics can be toxic, there's a lot of them that aren't. Um, deodorant, for example, uh, you know, shampoo, that kind of thing. So that, that's just a few of them, I guess. 
Kevin, crayons, pencils. I'm sure you get a lot of yep. calls about both crayons, of those. Crayons, pencil leads. You know, we because we call pencil leads lead, people are sometimes worried that they're made of lead. They're not. They're made of graphite. So we get worries about lead poisoning from those. A lot of times, even plants, it's very unlikely for a child with exploratory exposures to plants um, to get significantly sick, unless they happen to get poison ivy and think it's toilet paper or something like that. That can be a problem. Great. Now, you both alluded to COVID, trying to keep patients out of the ER if it's appropriate, they're asymptomatic. But talk to us about the impact of COVID, young children being at home more. Are they exposed more? And then maybe we could talk a little bit about the middle school child or the high school child and all the mental health issues we're seeing. So how has that affected the number of calls and the types of calls you've been getting during this epidemic? Yeah, so nationally, poison centers have been seeing an increase in some of the things people use in their house to stay, quote unquote, safe from COVID, right? So if you look at the American Association of Poison Control Center data, you know, there's an increase in, you name it, disinfectants, bleach, hand sanitizer, um, and even some more fortunately rare, but sinister stuff like hydroxychloroquine, which is really toxic when ingested. As for kids, it is more the, the former, fortunately. So the, you know, cleaning products and hand sanitizer. And then, you know, I think that we are seeing an increase in other ingestions as related to kids being home and parents trying to work from home and the supervision matrix being altered. So, uh, for example, both Kevin and I have seen a pretty big uptick in cannabis exposures, edible cannabis exposures in young kids. And that may be, I think it's a COVID effect, at least in part. Great. And yeah. we'll talk We'll talk about that a little bit later. Uh, Kevin, in the, in the older child, uh, all the mental health issues we're seeing, uh, you know, suicide, ingestions, depression, have you been seeing an uptick in calls uh, in, in that age group? Yeah, sure, Bob. You know, um, social distancing is not good for the development of your average adolescent. And we're seeing that play out in a lot of ways. And most of our emergency departments were filled to the brim with people looking for hard to find mental health services already. And and, uh, certainly that hasn't dissipated during the pandemic. A lot of mental health visits have gone to virtual as well. And um, mental health issues and ingestions with the intent of self-harm continue to be a challenge for us. Um, Another one for toddlers I was going to put in about having children at home all the time is some of the home environmental exposures that you might see. And and, uh, Diane and I both advise a lot of um, primary care providers around our regions for childhood lead poisoning, which often comes from exposure to the household lead dust. And when children aren't in school and they're in their own homes more, I think those exposures have gone up as well. Great. Let's uh, take a step back, uh, Kevin and Diane. Uh, Let's talk toxicology 101. Let's talk GI decontamination. Kevin, you and I trained in the days of syrup of Ipecac, activated charcoal. Uh, Diane, I'm sure you trained a few years after that. But uh, give us, what is the word now with GI decontamination for pediatric ingestions? Yeah, absolutely, Bob. You know, in the 1970s, every emergency department physician in the country was putting down EWAL tubes and doing gastric lavage and thought they were saving the world. And as we look for the evidence-based medicine for gastric lavage, um, it was hard to come by. Similarly, um, when I was a pediatric resident, at every one-year well-child visit, we'd give parents a prescription for syrup of Ipecac, tell them to fill it, have it at home, and to use us. 
And I was just speaking to one of my wonderful residents today who said, really? Because nobody's doing that in their one-year visit either. And, and although I think Diane and I both have anecdotes of people we think that it helped, we also know that it was being used in ways that weren't so helpful in medical child abuse and bulimia. And so I haven't really missed it being out. Um, when I was a pediatric emergency medicine fellow, my academic project was uh, with activated charcoal. And I followed 275 consecutive pediatric activated charcoal administrations over about a nine-month time in my pediatric ER. And I spoke to our pediatric emergency medicine fellows, and I asked them how many of them had given one dose, and only one of them said they'd even given one. So certainly these practices have changed. And you need to think, is what they took potentially dangerous? Is it going to harm them? Then you need to think, where is the drug now? And for something like activated charcoal, the drug's got to be in their stomach in order for the charcoal to find it. And then you have to think, can I give it safely? And when you go through those steps, the number of children that become potential recipients of those therapies goes way down. I did just use activated charcoal this past week. I had a teenage girl who took a large overdose of hydroxychloroquine. Dan already mentioned that can be really dangerous. She presented early after the overdose, and we said, boy, if she absorbs that, she can get really sick. Let's give it a try. She drank the charcoal. She didn't get sick, whether it was because she drank the charcoal or because she didn't really take that much hydroxychloroquine. I'll never know. But that's the kind of situation where I might use it. Great. Diane, anything to add to that? Uh, even with whole bowel ir irrigation, is that a, a, any use for that? Yeah, for sure. So a great summary by Kevin. And I agree. Um, you know, I think in the adult-sized patient who may be more likely to be intubated for their ingestion, the decision's a little easier because if you have a protected airway, giving one dose of charcoal, even if you think it may be out of the ideal window of, you know, one to two hours of gastric emptying, I think is a pretty easy decision if you're very concerned about the ingestion. Forcing the issue on a two or three-year-old who may or may not have, you know, swallowed something is a different story. And so sometimes I'll say, if I really care about what may be involved, see if the kid will drink charcoal, but don't push it. And let's certainly not create an aspiration event. I do like to utilize multiple dose activated charcoal for some ingestions. Um, aspirin, which has erratic prolonged absorption. If a patient's pretty sick from uh, salicylism, I'll give a few doses of multi-dose multi charcoal um, and a few things like that. And then whole bowel irrigation, I reserve for highly consequential sustained release preparations. So that's the verapamil Kevin mentioned. We have a girl we're taking care of this week with a bupropion overdose that's pretty sick that we're sustained release. And we know those pills can last in the small bowel for a long time. So for that, we're dropping the NG and giving you know polyethylene glycol one to two liters an hour as much as we can. Great. So markedly reduced, but there are specific cases, like you said, recommendations from the poison center to use specific forms of GI decontamination. Uh, yeah. All right, Kevin, back to you. Uh, the routine urine tox screen. Can you tell our listeners is there any role for that anymore? Does it help you? <laughs> yeah, this, thanks, Bob. This is a, a great topic for toxicologists. And uh, as a whole, toxicologists are kind of down on urine drug screens. We can talk about them a little bit. First off, you have to know what you have available to you. And different hospitals have different tests available. In general, most hospitals buy these commercially prepackaged 
immunoassays for drugs of abuse. Like everything in medicine, they follow the ABC other mnemonic, right? So they find amphetamines, benzodiazepines and barbiturates, cannabis and cocaine, and opiates. Sometimes there's an extra thing or two put on there. And at least for our toddler population, right, that might not be the majority of the stuff that they're getting into. It probably has much more relevance to pre-employment screening for people that are going to be driving heavy machinery or, or something of that nature. There are some problems with it too, right? Um, not every benzodiazepine is found by the benzodiazepine test. And the opiate test can really be quite problematic because um, most of the amino assays are really good for natural derivatives of the opium poppy. So they'll find morphine, they'll find heroin, codeine metabolizes to morphine, so they'll find that. But in general, they won't find the prescription opioids like oxycodone. They won't find um, the new synthetic that's taking over our streets, fentanyl. They won't find some of the things that we use to treat opioid use disorder like buprenorphine. So some hospitals add those in, um, but it can add a lot of confusion. And for me, I like to look at the patient, right? And we talk about toxidromes. What's this constellation of history and physical exam findings that we can put together to figure out what's happening with our patient? So if I have a patient who has CNS depression and they're barely breathing and they have pinpoint pupils, I'll give them naloxone. And three minutes later, they'll be awake and talking to me. And I've diagnosed, treated, and worked through opiate poisoning. And I didn't have to wait a couple of hours for that opiate test to come back. Are they tachycardic, hypertensive, big pupil, sweaty, diaphoretic? Then it's an amphetamine or cocaine. And so that um, drug of abuse screen probably has more utility in the follow-up kind of psychosocial evaluation of what's contributing to this patient's depression, substance use and has little use to me as a bedside emergency physician, if you will. Now, occasionally when I have the real medical mystery, like the two-year-old who seems to be hallucinating, and we're debating, is this from a Benadryl exposure, or is this his encephalitis, then sometimes planned strategic testing to look for Benadryl by ways that are called things like gas chromatography, mass spectroscopy, or um, liquid chromatography, tandem mass spectroscopy, or things like that can be useful. Dan, what are your experiences with, with that? Yeah, uh, you know, far be it from me to defend the much reviled urine drug screen. Um, except I, I'd add one thing, which is sometimes a urine drug screen in a two-year-old uncovers a relevant finding from a standpoint of child safety, a drug endangerment, right? So the diagnostic dilemma of the altered two-year-old or three-year-old who ends up being positive for methamphetamine in the urine or PCP or something like that, you know, it certainly doesn't really help you very much in the ED unless, you know, three or four hours later, the child is awake and you're thinking to discharge them, but now you may want to involve, um, involve social services or child protective services. So I think it has some value in that, but the physical exam, you know, beats the urine drug screen any day. And I, I agree. And that's such an important point, Diane, because, you know, I think you're going to ask us about it later, Bob. We're in the midst of a huge opioid epidemic, right? And we, we have children who are being poisoned with heroin and with fentanyl, and uh, they come in. And when we um, identify that they have fentanyl poisoning, that becomes important. Another thing your listeners might want to know, Bob, right, is 
If you send a urine drug of abuse screen on a child under some age, I don't know what that age is. Certainly, you know, is it under 10? Is it under eight? Is it under six? Is it under three? If that test comes out positive, it's going to have medical, legal, psychosocial implications, and it might actually take you to court or ask you to talk about it in some way. So making sure that you handle those specimens properly. And what I really love, if you have it, is saving a little extra specimen so that that test can be confirmed by a different method. At the Children's Hospital of Philadelphia, any positive test gets confirmed automatically, but that's not the routine in so many hospitals and it's not legally positive until it's confirmed by a more specific method. Excellent advice uh, if you're going to obtain a urine drug screen, and again, some pearls from both of you. Diane, let's talk about acetaminophen, okay? We had this toxin for decades. We're familiar with the four-hour level, the nomogram, NAC for treatment. What are some cutting-edge new treatments or permutations, specifically do you start NAC before the four-hour level? Different ways to give NAC. If you're concerned that they took a huge ingestion, do you give a higher dose than you would normally recommend? So what are some of the sort of the cutting edge, the sort of the controversial aspects with a poison that we've seen for decades, acetaminophen? Yeah, you know, uh, I'll tell you, Bob, you get a room full of toxicologists going on acetaminophen and come back in three days and we're still talking about it because there's so much nuance and controversy, and uh, we can't seem to ever get enough. But um, so, you know, we know that acetaminophen has a very good antidote in N-acetylcysteine. And we've abided by this thought that as long as you catch it early enough and you give the patient N-acetylcysteine, they will not develop fulminant hepatic failure. And that is based on the four-hour level established on the rumac matthew nomogram, which of course is predicated on the patient's history being somewhat reliable. Right. The only way you know that you have a four-hour level is if you really kind of know when the ingestion occurred. And it has to be a single acute ingestion, not took too much over a few days. So with all those caveats, I think kind of happily we're doing either the 17-dose um, oral N-acetylcysteine mucamist regimen um, up until I think it was about 2000 when the uh, IV formulation was approved, and then we went to the 21-hour infusion. And that seemed to work pretty great. However, massive acetaminophen ingestion, maybe it's the popularity of stores, you know, big box stores where you can buy a 250-capsule bottle. Those massive ingestions are not always adequately treated by standard-dose N-acetylcysteine. And we have to think about other things, like doubling that NAC infusion rate. And there's, I think, a fair amount of disagreement on at what point do you double and how long do you double the infusion rate. What we do um, is if a patient presents with a level over 300 at any point in time, instead of the, you know, the first bag is 150 milligrams per kilo load, the second bag is 50 milligrams per kilo over four hours, we'll continue that bag and not go down to that third lower infusion rate until the patient has resolved. Other options, you could give IV and PO um, because the whole idea is just to kind of get more N-acetylcysteine molecules into the patient to counteract acetaminophen. And we could delve into further detail, of course, on, on any of that. I'll just mention two other modalities that uh, I want to hear Kevin's. First of all, I want to, Kevin, I want to know your, how you've solved this puzzle of N-acetylcysteine dosing. But 
Hemodialysis in the patient with a very high level altered mental status and acidosis, which is a rare patient, but we're talking levels over 800 or so. Benefit from hemodialysis. You can remove acetaminophen with hemodialysis. We just don't really have to. And then I think the most cutting edge thing that's come out this year is some authors have suggested using famepazole, you know, which you remember from toxic alcohol treatment, um, to block some of the metabolism and repair some of the cellular injury from acetaminophen damage. So. Great. Kevin, any additions to that? Yeah, there are a lot of cool things. So one of the things that Diane mentioned was dialysis for really high levels. And I think a lot of people might not realize that at massive overdose, as Diane mentioned, levels over 800. And remember, the magic number of acetaminophen is 150. The four-hour level we worry about is 150. The approximate toxic dose of acetaminophen is 150 mg per kg. The loading dose of IV N-acetylcysteine is 150 mg per kg. So there's one number to stick with. It's 150. I'm going to play the lottery with that number later tonight, I think, Bob. Um, <laughs> but if your level's over 800 or so, it actually becomes a mitochondrial poison. And those patients will present with agitation or coma, profound metabolic acidosis with elevated blood lactates. And uh, we had a teenager who presented in exactly that way, shape, or form. And we said, boy, hemodialysis might help. And uh, it was even a little bit strange the nephrologist who called me and said really hemodialysis for acetaminophen we said yep and afterwards they said it was one of the most rewarding things they did right before their eyes they saw that patient get better so it is pretty cool in that way and um and that's what i use as my my guideline for that is if you see significant mitochondrial failure which is usually manifest by metabolic acidosis and altered mental status at least give hemodialysis consideration and uh, yeah, Diane and I were both at our one of our national meetings last week, and there was a lot of talk about the use of fomepazole, and and we use other strange math that you don't read about so often, like acetaminophen cross products, where we multiply the serum acetaminophen level by the AST or ALT, whichever is higher, see where that number gets us. And there's growing consensus now that if the toxicity is measured by that cross product is really high. Fomepazole may help and has very little downside of harming, and so we'll give it a try, but we're going to learn a lot more about that over the next two years. Great. That's awesome news. Let's uh, let's talk. The weather's getting warmer out. I uh, follow our national leaders, both medical and uh, executive chief, President Biden and Dr. Fauci. We're going to start to get together, hopefully in the next few months, outdoors, maybe in small groups in our backyards. Just went to Home Depot, Kevin, and purchased some tiki torches. And as I was uh, obtaining the fluid to put in it, I was a little thirsty. It looked like apple juice, Kevin. Talk to us about the Tiki Torch fluid and, and the risk factors there. Yeah, these, these uh, torch fuels were a notorious poison, weren't they? they? They came in these clear plastic bottles. They were amber in color that looked like apple juice. And where do you keep your patio torch lamps? Right near your picnic tables and things like that. And so it was a common place to put those bottles. And when children drink them, they're hydrocarbons. They have low surface tension, low viscosity. They go over those nice wet esophageal layers, get into their lungs and set up a nasty chemical pneumonitis and can be really, really dangerous. You know, Diane and I and, and poison centers all around the country do a lot of advocacy to try to make products safer. And I wanted to bring this to the attention of some legislators. And they had a special legislator breakfast that I went to 
and I had my desk and I put my props down and one of them was my bottle of torch fuel. And then I went over to get a coffee and a donut where they had it set up. And when I turned around, one of the legislators was pouring himself a glass of my torch fuel because he thought it was apple juice. Um, oh my. One of the things you probably noticed when you just went to your local store is now almost all the time the bottles are opaque. They're dark green or even black in color. So they look less like apple juice. And that's because of work of pediatrician advocates, uh, the Consumer Product Safety Commission, and poison centers working to make products safer. And um, I don't know the numbers to give you. I haven't seen it studied, but my sense over the last couple of summers is that those injuries have gone down, but they're, they're still something that concern us. Great. Let's, uh, let's shift gears now. A few months ago, my mom, who's been hard of hearing for many years, we took her and we successfully convinced her to get hearing aids. We talked about COVID, kids being home more, playing with different remote controls and games. Both of these devices, as many other devices, key fobs, cameras, have button batteries in them. Okay, I think most of our listeners who work in the ER are very familiar how to distinguish radiographically, although please share with us, a button battery from a coin. But tell us a little bit, I know CHOP has a pathway about button battery ingestion. So Diane, why don't you start off? Tell us a little bit about Poison Center's experience with calls for button batteries and some of the morbidity and mortality that you've been confronted with from these batteries. Yeah, you know, there's a few ingestions that I hate to hear about because they move fast and the consequences can be irreversible. Hydrocarbons is one, button batteries is definitely another. And we've always known a button battery could conduct electrical current and cause an esophageal burn. Um, and we tried to take them out as quickly as we could, you know, and, and you can see, you know, we look carefully at an x-ray to make sure that we see kind of a concentric ring or a halo sign that you see with a battery that you don't see with a coin. But what has changed in somewhat recent years, about 2012, is the emergence of a 20 millimeter three volt battery. And those batteries are almost the size of a quarter. They conduct a lot more electricity and they can cause a life-threatening injury within about two hours. Um, and so we have a lot of really tragic reports of kids with aortoesophageal fistulas or you know, coming in with just gross hematemesis and exsanguinating. So those batteries you know, have to come out right away. And, um, you know, it really kind of breaks your heart when you see them. I had a little girl who was three years old, came to my ED, she was in pain, and her parents said she had swallowed a quarter. Now, I think we've all seen kids who swallow coins and they're not usually in distress, unless it's just kind of sitting in a funny spot where they're gagging. This little girl had pain, she was tachycardic. And they swore up and down that she you know, could not have swallowed a battery because they kept such a close eye on her, on her and on her toys. Turns out she had pulled a 20 millimeter battery out of a light up plastic tiara. And she did have a burn in her esophagus. And it, I mentioned the case because this is a children's toy. And, you know, they're in singing cards and they're in a lot of things, but these big old 20 millimeter batteries are, are somewhat ubiquitous and really do a lot of damage. Right. I'm sure the Poison Control Center, when they get a call like that, come to the ER ASAP. Kevin, any other pre-hospital treatment that the parent could initiate before they get to the ED? Yeah, actually, Dr. Ian Jacobs at the Children's Hospital of Philadelphia, he's one of our otorhinolaryngologists, has a little research group that looks at these. He's had, done a lot of work with the um, 
American Academy of Pediatrics on button battery safety. And he's had a couple of models looking at um, giving honey in small amounts to the children to try to absorb some of that electrical and caustic injury in ERs giving caraphate to do that. And so when children are at home, our poison center has recommended that if the families can do it. Now, truthfully, families being able to find some honey to give um, may just detract them from getting to the ER. So I think our number one measure is get to the ER as soon as possible. And, and that's something interesting to consider at reducing injury if we can. Diana, is your poison center recommending that at all yet? or? No, although I think you make a good argument, Kevin, in the patient who you know there's going to be delay anyway, right? You know, whether you're waiting for an ambulance or the other compelling argument I heard for that is, well, you're waiting for the kid to go to endoscopy or something, you know, and, and have it removed, giving uh, caraphate or, or honey seems reasonable. Um, I just never want a, an intervention like that to delay definitive care. Um, and so we always talk about this with managing a poison patient. Like, are we recommending something that is going to be so distracting, like gastric lavage, for example, that, you know, instead of the patient actually getting what they need, which is removal of the battery. But I think it's uh, reasonable and pretty low risk. And Bob, if anybody wants a uh, barbecue science experiment to do um, this year and doing it safely, not letting these get in the hands of children or uh, your goofball uncle, right? Um, save one hot dog, don't put it on the grill, take a button battery and stick it in the middle of the hot dog, leave it until the end of your barbecue and go back and open it up and look. And you can see the burns right in the hot dog. It starts to cook from the inside. So then you can imagine what it might do to a a nine-month-old's esophagus. Kevin, I will have the podcast medical students who work with us do that experiment and we'll post pictures (laughs) on our social media account uh, to show everyone. And I think it's a separate podcast, Bob. You could decide we could discuss which is more toxic, the button battery or the hot dog. <laughs> <laughs> uh, so adults who work in an office setting, okay, when they used to work in offices, uh, a lot of times for distraction techniques, had some adult toys on their desk, buckyballs. Now they're working at home. They may bring some of their office desk tools, toys home. Uh, buckyballs are magnets, okay? We all know one magnet ingestion, pretty safe overall. Uh, multiple magnets, a little concerning. And let's talk specifically uh, about some of these more powerful magnets, these rare earth magnets. Diane, tell us a little bit about uh, the toxicity, especially with multiple ingestions of multiple rare earth magnets. Yeah, if you've ever handled a rare earth magnet, you know, a neodymium magnet or one of these ultra, really, really powerful magnets, you know, these are strong. I mean, you could lose some a part of your finger if you get in between those magnets. And what the buckyballs and related toys are, tiny little balls of these very strong rare earth magnets. And the issue is that if a child swallows more than one, it can cause those magnets to kind of come together in the intestine, you know, in such a way that it can cause, um, you know, an adhesion and a twist. And so these are hard. And we're, we're lucky that they're radio opaque, but you know, we we refer them all in. They're also easily found on MRI, Diane. In case you... Oh, good. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> that is I a joke for that. anybody out there listening. Do not MRI <laughs> your magnet ingestions. <laughs> I, I try to avoid that. But, you know, 
anyway, so we send them all in if a child has, in, has potentially ingested more than one, but they are tiny and they're, they look like a lot of fun. It's not hard to imagine how a kid could get into it. And Kevin, we have experienced at CHOP uh, where we've seen a number of children, like you said, with multiple of these rare earth magnet ingestions, uh, some with good outcomes, some with not so good outcomes. Any comments? No, that's exactly right. You know, they they uh, get on opposite sides of the intestinal tract and with the pressure actually can cause enteric fistulas and perforations and, and cause a sepsis syndrome. So it's important to identify them. Boy, kids act fast, right? It's a, a tricky job being a parent and watching over them. Yeah. Let's uh, transition again, team, to uh, what I would call an oldie but goodie ingestion. I remember back in the day, we had our well-child care clinics in residency, and adjacent to them, or at least one day a week, it would be joined, Kevin and Diane, by a lead clinic. Okay, and others specifically, we'd have patients with lead, chronic lead toxicity or an acute toxicity come to the lead clinics. Haven't heard much about it over the last decade or so, up until 2014, when we all remember in Flint, Michigan, when uh, they transitioned the water supply to Flint, Michigan, to the Flint River. We saw that over 100,000 people were exposed to drinking water contaminated by lead. Tell us what any current words that you want to share with us. And I know, Kevin, you sit on the Lead Free Philly Coalition. Tell us about a little bit about lead and any updates uh, regarding that. Yeah, Diane and I both spend a lot of our time on lead and, you know, kind of like a tale of two cities. It was the best of times. It was the worst of times. Uh, when I was a kid, 80% of children tested for lead had blood leads higher than 10. So we've made remarkable progress at cleaning the world because now we're at well less than 5% of children having blood leads higher than 5. The downside is our understanding of what lead does to the developing brain has grown, and we know that there's no safe amount of lead, and we want to reduce that. And, and uh, at this national meeting last week, I presented five kids I treated with blood lead levels higher than 100, so it's still a, a large problem for, for many kids. And you know the solution is largely environmental. We need to clean the environments where, where they live. Diane, you have to add. Yeah. You know, obviously the water issue has generated a lot of concern. Flint is not alone in that many cities have undergone kind of renovation or trying to kind of refurbish aging water infrastructure. And my own city of the Poison Center of Newark has undergone this recently as well, has high water lead levels. And it creates a lot of concern. What happened in Flint is when the water source was switched from, you know, a known and tested water source to the Flint River, which was untested. The corrosivity of that river kind of eroded the pipe scale in the municipal water and leached lead into the pipes. And that mechanism is, you know, repeats over and over in cities. I think an important thing to remember about water, though, is that it does not cause the kind of lead levels that have children hospitalized, with certainly not with encephalopathy or even very high levels. What was reported in Flint is that many more children had abnormal levels, but not high magnitude elevations. Doesn't mean it doesn't matter. It certainly does. As Kevin said, we know there's, it's a no threshold toxin. But I like to emphasize that interior, you know, environmental um, exposure with lead paint, residential paint, 
or imported cosmetics and food and, and other things to a lesser extent, Ayurvedic or herbal meds, is still much more um, of a hazard to an individual child than the water that comes out of their tap. Yep. And I think, um, you know, the, the politics of that water switch in Flint sound despicable. Uh, yeah. The work of Dr. Atish at discovering that was amazing and inspirational. But when you look at the numbers in Flint that brought us back, you know, we were glad because it brought notoriety back to this issue of lead poisoning. We're never anywhere near as bad as they had always been in Detroit or had been in Philadelphia or had been in Camden. And so, as Diane said, you know, it's this old housing stock that, re that remains the, the threat. And in Pennsylvania, we are a high risk geographic area. More than 25% of our housing stock was built before 1978. And so the American Academy of Pediatrics recommends, the state government recommends that all children be screened for blood lead somewhere between nine months and one year of age, and again at two years of age. And um, currently we're not doing a very good job of meeting those screening goals. So if you're in primary care or if you're sister has a child who's about one year of age, just uh, remember that we're still looking at screening for those blood lead levels. What do you do in New Jersey, Diane? We have the same struggle, Kevin. Uh, you know, we recommend nine months for the higher risk kids and one and two years as kind of a baseline. And uh, compliance with that is not what, what we'd like it to be. There's a lot of kids who don't get tested. And we know, you know, although it of course catches the problem after it's occurred, it's the only way to catch it. So we just continue to encourage, in conjunction with the Department of Health, just encourage our primary care providers to get that testing done. And I'll say COVID has created an unfortunate perfect storm in that regard. You know, people can't get kids in for routine visits for a lot of reasons. And so the lead levels fall by the wayside. Kids are home more, where we know a lot of children are exposed to lead in the paint in their homes. And in a lot of places, the inspection that needs to happen in the home can't happen because of COVID restrictions or limited workforce or, you know. So I think we're going to see and hear a lot more about this story in the wake of COVID. I say, Kevin and Diane, let's, uh, let's conclude with just two more specific toxins. One that's been in the news, any age group, and that's opioids. Initially, we saw toddlers, and we'll focus on the toddler age group, ingesting. You alluded to one pill can kill. And I think some of these medications in a toddler can kill. And it transitioned now to uh, medications like Suboxone or Buprenorphine. So talk to us now about opioids, specifically, I guess, in the toddler age group. And uh, talk to us about, do they have to be ingested? I know there's patches of these medicines too. So what are the current updates and the recommendations from our two poison control center experts? Kevin, you want to take it first? Sure. You know, uh, I think if you live in the professional world that Diane and I live in, it's almost always opioids. The answer is almost always opioids. There are so many children that are getting into them. Our intensive care unit routinely gets admissions for children who, you know, oftentimes the parents will notice that their children were snoring a little bit overnight in an unusual way. And then the next morning, they're at first a little bit happy because their kids are sleeping in a little bit in the morning, but then Finally, when things get strange and they try to wake them up and they find that they can't wake them up, they come to the hospital. And often by that time, you know, there's been some ischemic injury and it just becomes a, a big family tragedy. And, you know, the big player right now is fentanyl. Fentanyl is so potent. Fentanyl has largely replaced heroin in 
the heroin market in um, Pennsylvania, New Jersey, and other areas. Um, but buprenorphine uh, remains a challenge for the children, as do prescription opioids like oxycodone. And so, you know, I think for all of us that work in pediatric emergency medicine, we need to recognize it. We need to know how to use naloxone. When we prescribe, we need to think about that and and provide education and guidance to the families that we give prescriptions to. In both Pennsylvania and New Jersey and Delaware, you can get naloxone in any pharmacy with a standing prescription so that if there are families who are maybe deemed to be at risk because they get a lot of opioid prescriptions, you can think about giving them naloxone that they can use in their home. And uh, it's just important to keep in mind. Diane, your thoughts? Yeah, I agree with Kevin. I think um, opioids are a commonly available medication in a lot of people's homes. And with that availability comes the false perception that it's not that dangerous. And so talking to parents about safe opioid storage and the fact that one pill really can kill, particularly a young child, is important. We face an additional hurdle with opioid ingestions, which is stigma and the concern of a parent who reaches out that there may be ramifications. And a lot of the deaths from opioid ingestion in young children involve delayed care. So having that conversation in as sensitive a way as possible to encourage parents who have opioids in the home to seek medical attention if uh, the you know, unthinkable should occur is key. Another misconception is that buprenorphine which is relatively safe in adults because of a ceiling effect on the respiratory drive, does not share that safety profile in young kids. Uh, if you compare buprenorphine even to morphine in an anesthesia studies, it depresses the respiratory drive in young children much more than even equianalgesic morphine. So a kid who ingests buprenorphine is more likely potentially to stop breathing. And adults on buprenorphine may think that's really not possible because we always talk about the safety of it in adults. Great. Excellent points. Kevin? Yeah, well, right or wrong, you know, everybody keeps a little extra amoxicillin in their uh, medicine cabinet for that next ear infection and, you know, a little bit of those different things. But again, opioids are one of those things I really tell families, you know, when you're done with them, it's time to get rid of them and get rid of them safely. Excellent point. Let's conclude, Kevin and Diane, with talking about the last toxin, Diane, your state joined 17 other states in approving adult recreation use of this medication. Talk to us about cannabis edibles. Uh, I recently, not personally, but you know, Googled and saw the packaging. These gummy bears, they look delicious, all different colors, the brownies. So talk to, talk to us, is it a drug that causes significant symptoms in children? I know it's becoming more readily available and it just became you know, legalized uh, in the state of New Jersey for recreation use. Yeah, you know, certainly the topic of cannabis legalization has so many facets, right? Um, and you could argue until you're blue in the face about the benefits and the drawbacks. Um, and I've certainly tried. <laughs> but one thing that is clear is that when you look at accidental poison exposures in kids, it's always edibles. You know, kids don't smoke, accidentally smoke pot. They... Right eat the gummy bear or the homemade brownie, whatever it is. And so the lookalike phenomenon, I think is one we really have to take a hard look at. Does a candy need to look like a popular candy? Um, and of course it's more appealing to the consumer, but at what cost? And so 
things like gummy bears or even edibles that are packaged like a brand name candy, which of course are not made by the manufacturer, but you know, we've seen THC nerds rope, which of course makes the nerds rope people very unhappy, but it looks just like nerds rope or medicated Skittles, you know, again, Skittles isn't happy about it, but it looks almost identical. And I just am constantly asking, why does that have to be the case? And states like Colorado that have gone before New Jersey and other states have said, like, we need to cut down on this lookalike phenomenon, but it's, it's really hard. The marketplace is pervasive and there's many, 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 many places to buy edibles. And um, I think it's a real enforcement challenge and regulatory challenge. You know what else I think is crazy, Bob? So if I work an overnight ER shift or a late evening, you know, and you get those, those munchies and you're going to eat bad food. Well, if I sit down to a bag of gummy worms, I might eat 15 or 20 of them. They're delicious. That texture is great, right? That's, you know, 20 gummy worms. But when you actually look at the intent for gummy, THC gummy worms, if you ask somebody who's savvy and say, yeah, if you're having a party, what do you give people? They might say, well, you know, if somebody comes over and they're a little younger and they're a little naive, I might give them a quarter of a gummy worm. And if somebody's a regular smoker of marijuana, I might give them a half of a gummy worm. And because I'm a 420 stoner, you know, I'll eat the whole gummy worm, right? And and the amounts of THC in a single gummy are, are really large, right? And so when you get a toddler who finds a gummy worm, you know, even if they only eat one, that dose is, is massive for them. And, you know, a lot of people that are your age, Bob, and my age, you know, we're, we're used to maybe the 60s view of Woodstock and Janis Joplin. You know, the marijuana they were smoking at Woodstock was like 1% THC. The bad marijuana you buy in the streets of Philadelphia now is at least 7 or 8%. The better stuff is 15%. If you go to the dispensary, it's 30%. If you get the THC oils, it's close to 100%. And so, you know, even among teenagers, we're seeing more paranoia, more like my heart's beating out of my chest. It's never done this before. Why is it going on? And it's just because, you know, this THC dosing is, is things that people weren't ready for. Kevin, maybe we need to have another Woodstock, maybe Woodstock 2021 with these higher concentrations of uh, the medications that they, or the drugs that they used back then. I'm uh, in, but I still won't eat the brown acid. <laughs> Diane, are you in? <laughs> sure. Okay. Uh, th- all right. I, I want to thank, go ahead, Diane. But um, there's no way I'm eating one square of a chocolate bar. So let's just lay that out there. Okay. I want to thank you both, Kevin and Diane, for a whirlwind tour of pediatric toxicology. Before I let you go, I want, we have, like I said, close to a thousand listeners per episode, ranging from nurses, nurse practitioners, residents, attendings, fellows. Diane, what final thoughts do you have for the listeners of the podcast uh, regarding pediatric toxicology? Well, of course, my parting thought is always call the poison center. And um, it's for a few reasons. First of all, because we do love getting the calls and helping. Um, There's always a toxicologist backing up the poison specialist who wants to talk to providers about how to manage these patients. We also serve a a surveillance role uh, that we really value. So just keep the number and remember it, even if you think you're calling with a straightforward thing, uh, because we may have something that would be helpful. And at the very least, we can kind of track these trends and identify new hazards for kids. Great. Kevin, you get the final word. All right. Well, uh, you know, in, 
in Hollywood, when somebody gets poisoned, you typically have 24 hours to find the antidote or you die, right? And for the first six hours, you're fine. The next six hours, you're inebriated and and maybe you look all cute so you can fall in love and it goes through and then you find some magical antidote you get at the last moment and it gets you better. And um, toxicology really isn't like that. There are a few antidotes that we like. If I was bitten by a cobra, boy, I would love to get the cobra antivenom. And we talked about N-acetylcysteine for acetaminophen and naloxone for opiates and they're all great. But for the most part, you know, for the uh, the people that work in emergency departments that are listening, it's really good attention to the airway, breathing, circulation, and delivery of glucose and oxygen. And if you can just keep that going for the 24 to 48 hours until the drug's out of their system, they'll do better. And so pay attention to that and then call Diane at the Poison Center. And uh, Bob, this was a lot of fun. I've enjoyed talking to you in this way. And as long as you can convince Diane to come back to make me... Uh, sound better and look good with her class and intelligence i'd be happy to do this again <laughs> thank you so much kevin and thank you so much diane it was a pleasure take care now thanks so much <laughs>